Church, love being here with you today. And with all the activities of life going on, we get to kind of coalesce together and gather around together and just be together. And uh, I'll open with this. There is no greater place to behold the gloriousness of our God than in the place of repentance. There is no place where we can behold the grace and the greatness and the gloriousness of our God than in the very place of repentance. And living new people frequent that place. Today, we're going to be talking about um, repenting anew, as in repenting afresh. But first, let me take you back to the 1500s. It was in the early 1500s that there was a monk who sat in his uh, stone, simple, small monastery room, and uh, he agonized over his spiritual condition. He had entered the monastery thinking that he could achieve freedom from sin. Wouldn't that be great? But he wasn't finding it. His teachers told him that he could, be, he could strive to be victorious over sin, so he relentlessly prayed and fasted and worked for that victory. And for three years, he focuses, focused his attention on that. And for three years, he worked for that victory. And then he is quoted as saying, I torment myself to death to procure peace with God for my troubled heart and my agitated conscience. But I am surrounded by the horrible darkness and can find peace nowhere. It was guilt upon guilt for this monk. And as a sinner before a holy God and his understanding of things, he even uh, uh, wrestled with guilt over sleeping well. In fact, he would go to confession and he would frequently confess the fact of having slept well last night in light of the fact that he's broken before a holy God. In fact, it's told that uh, the priest, the older priest that this young monk would go to, uh, once said to him, Martin Luther, either find a new sin and commit it or quit coming to me. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Luther had actually given up the opportunity to have a lucrative career in law. But he was uh, just very attentive to the reality of his brokenness. It was kind of like uh, tape on a baby's finger. You know, he just tried shaking it off. He tried pulling it off. But it was like he just didn't have the capability to, to get it off. And he wrestled in it. It kind of begs the question, can a person go from guilty upon guilty to blessings upon blessings, can they? I want us to find some answers to that. And if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Let's seek what the Lord has to say. Speaking about guilt and, and, and the reality of that, a few ways that our world tries to attempt at removing guilt. One is the world says, well, just excuse it away. No one's perfect. Totally true, except for the Lord. No one's perfect, and so, uh, you know, uh, just excuse it away. Every, everyone sins. Get it. Okay. Uh, some say, blame it away. It's not your fault. It's their fault. It's always someone else's fault, right? It's not our fault. 
explain it away. Another one that is commonly common in religious circles is good works it away. You know, no one's perfect, everyone's broken, but as long as there's more good works that weigh more so over the sin, then you're okay. Our world also will approach the guilt of life and seek to drown it. Drown it in alcohol, drown it in uh, pleasure, drown it in drugs, whether those be illegal or prescription. Hey, here, here's one of my favorites. Some years ago, you could get on Amazon and you could order a, a set of guilt bags. They were four brown paper bags, five brown paper bags in a package, $10 a piece. I'm, I'm not kidding on this. This is for real. And you could order that and, and it would get in on those instructions. It said this, place the bag securely over your mouth, take a deep breath, blow all your guilt out and then dispose of the bag immediately. Man, I got to tell you, it's like, uh, how, how ridiculous does our world go at things? Can you imagine Luther? He learns about that. I'm sure they had Amazon back then. And he, he gets on and he orders his uh, disposable guilt bag set. And in that, uh, there he is in his monk outfit. And then the similarly brown suited UPS driver uh, comes, drops the uh, uh, guilt bag set off at the monastery office. He goes up, he finds it there. He comes back, he, he grabs one of the bags, he reads the directions and he's like, oh man, this is it, this is it. And he pulls one out. He, he takes this gigantic breath with all his living essence in it. And he, and he takes it, he seals it off and he throws it in the monastery dumpster. And I'm sure he comes back and he goes, finally, I am free, I am free, I am free indeed. I don't know, I thought you'd kind of laugh a little bit more than that. <laughs> After all that effort in there. Uh, I, I mean, I, there's just a reality in it though, really. That's the world's attempts at things. There's got to be something better than this. Or do we just live with it? Well, we... Uh, join David in Psalm 32. And there is an answer to that. There's a place called repentance. And friends, it is not a punishment place. It is not a timeout place. The place of repentance is a glorious place. The place of repentance is filled with grace. And living new people frequent it regularly. By the way, I just want to make sure you understand, I'm not talking about salvation. Repentance begins life with Christ. When we come to the place where we realize that we're a sinner separated from God because of our guilt of our sin, and we repent, and positionally, Scripture tells us that we are covered by the work of Christ in that, and we are positionally forgiven, sins past, sins present, sins future. But, but, then, but then there is a reality of living out our salvation. And, and, and because repentance is not just about acknowledging and saying it, it is about a change in it. And yet, uh, what if there was a repentance that took place, like even on a daily basis, where we come and we rehearse the gospel in our mind and we bring to account the things that are there, not that God is holding them against us, but because they weigh on us. And we're refreshed anew. Oh. Living new people frequent that place. Let's dive in and let's, let's see what David has to say. The context of Psalm 32 uh, leading into this psalm is David is about 50 years old. 50 years old, that's, that's old, but 
It's not as old as me. Um, back in that day, 50 years was about as old as me. <laughs> it was old. David's 50 years. He's been king of Israel for 20 years now. Well, you know, David uh, is called from the scriptures. He's called a man after God's own heart. And David knew the blessings of God. David knew the, the, the favor of God on his life. He was not perfect, but David was a guy who, I would say, was redeemed in the coming work of Christ. One evening, David can't sleep. Uh, David's in Jerusalem. His men are out at war. Don't have time to talk about that, but David should have been out. But, but David's in Jerusalem, and um, he's on his, uh, he can't sleep at night. That happens when you get older. You can't sleep at night. He's a leader. The weight of all that, can't sleep at night. Nothing's wrong with that. David gets up and walks out on his patio. David's uh, palace was in Jerusalem, and, and actually it was such that he, he, when he walked on his roof, he could see all the other houses around. By the way, what a great place for a leader to be, to understand that uh, I'm with these people. These are my people. And David's out, and he's walking on his roof, uh, nothing wrong, and then all of a sudden he sees a beautiful woman bathing, and rather than on top of her roof, and rather than hightailing his heart out and his eyes out like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, um, David lingers. And an innocent sighting moves into a lustful heart. David even asks his staff to go get her. By the way, the boldness of that. David commits adultery. There are so many things going on in that. It's not just about the sexual act of adultery. It's about everything surrounding all that and taking place and before his God and before the people and, and before uh, this woman who has married Bathsheba. And her husband, by the way, at the time is out at war. And her, her husband, Uriah, is one of David's mighty men of Scripture. And in a very short period of time, David's life went from unable to sleep to adulterer, to deceiver adulterer, to a deceiver adulterer murderer. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, we're going to find out that his guilt is piled up. He knows he did wrong. He can't excuse it away. He can't blame it on her. He can't blame it on his situation. Well, there's a lot of stress in being a leader. Yep, there is. He can't blame it away. He can't um, excuse it away. He can't good works it away. He can't drown it away. And he certainly can't brown bag blow it away. But we'll see in the text, David does what I fear that you and I too far often do. David silences it away. God loves the place of repentance. And living new redeemed people in Christ frequent that place. 
Let's go to the text here. Verses 1 and 2, David opens uh, this, this psalm. He's writing this after all of uh, everything took place. He's reflecting back and he opens up with, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is the teen against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and, his, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Wow, that's cool. That, that's kind of a surprising opening to a psalm that's about his deceiving, adultering, murdering, and all this other kind of sin piled up situation in his life. And he starts out with blessing. And it's like, I want that, right? I want that. I want blessing. I'm broken. I, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Redeemed in Christ, I pray that you are. And yet in that reality, still uh, sinners before a holy God and our sins may be covered past, present, and future, but then there is a daily progressive sanctification of living out ourselves salvation, and even in our brokenness in that, uh, we understand what's going on here, and yet we go, wow, is it possible to have blessings like this when, 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 when someone has done like that? Not me, not me, not you, no, no, not, we wouldn't do that, but isn't it interesting how we stack our sins on who has the greatest sin, as long as we're under that? Anyway, David here, intriguingly in this psalm, uses three different words for sin in this. Uh, uh, he uses in verse one uh, for transgression, he uses the Hebrew word peshe, peshe. It's a willful violation by an inferior against a superior. In verse one, it's this open defiance against God. He says, I openly defiantly sinned against you, God. This was not an oopsie. Uh, it's knowingly committing sin before our creator. God, before you I committed uh, this sin. It's a willful in, uh, violation of sin before our superior, Pesha. Then in the latter half of verse one, he uses the word hata. It carries the broadest range of meaning for sin. It's not just a single act of sin. It's the broadest wholeness of sin. Hata is the entirety of sin. It wasn't just the act of adultery. It was everything associated with that. The boldness of asking his people to go get her and for put them in a place as a leader to, 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 to help him in his sin. And yet what were they to do? And all of the breadth of it all, uh, hata, the entirety of sin. And then in verse two, he uses the, the word avon, iniquity, deceit. It's sin that relates to religious and ethical parameters. It's not only that I did a horizontal sin, it's I did a, a vertical sin. I did an ethical sin, I did a spiritual sin. And it's an entire sin. And it was sin done uh, brazenly in front of my holy God, who is a God who has brought me here, placed me here, created me here, and even redeemed me. Man, he covers it all. Blessing can come to those who know sin that big and that broad and that deep. I want in on that. Why those three words? For breadth and emphasis. David's referring to the totality of sin. And friend, our sin is vast. Our sin is serious. Sin breaks Sin crushes, 
Sin destroys. Sin devastates. Sin separates. And, and I don't enjoy saying this, but the fact of the matter is, is sin sends unredeemed people to hell. Sin is that serious. We're not talking about oopsies. We're talking about something that has grand ramifications to it that literally causes people to go to hell for eternity. And yet we want to cover and dance over it. If we do not grasp the total reality of our depravity before God, if we do not grasp the totality reality of our depravity before God, we will never grasp grace. And here's the point of today. How often do we miss being refreshed and reminded of God's grace by not going to the place of repentance? Oh, what if we went to this place every day and reminding ourselves of who God is and, 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 and our failure, uh, not as a beating ourselves down. It, it, it's not a time out place. It's a time with place. It's a time to have grace refresh us and, and the cross remind us and, and the gospel uh, uh, tell us and preach to us again of what's taking place and for grace to surround and, and for guilt to be, to be turned into blessing. What if, what if that was happening every day? Friends, what if we were bringing the things we're seeking to grow in there every day? I, 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 I put on the table that lives would change but we don't want to go to that place. Why? Because we're proud. I'm proud. You're proud. Let's just be straight up. And we don't like to go to that place because we think that that place is a place of shame, and that's a shame, because that is a place of grace to rehearse the gospel again and again and refresh ourselves in what God has done. Well, well let, let, let's pull this together. Here David is going from guilt upon guilt to blessings upon blessings. From guilt upon guilt to blessings upon blessings. Let's hear a story. It begins with him being agonized. Verses three and four. For when I kept silent. By the way, that was the problem. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, King James Version, it has roaring. Through my roaring all day long. This is someone in agony. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now there's no question that David is referring to sins that we would say are quite they're doozers. Right? I mean, adultery, doozer, um, murder, doozer, um, deception, you know, we kind of put that in the, well, you know, not good, but kind of acceptable. No, 
No, listen, David certainly had a pile of these things in here. And yet the issue in all of this, the issue is, is David kept silent in his sin. And again, I believe that David is fully redeemed in the future coming work of Christ. That he is a redeemed follower of the Lord. He is saved positionally. His sins have been forgiven past, present, and future by Yahweh in all of that. And yet David, in the reality of living out as a 50-year-old, 20 years as king. Remember, we studied through him last year coming into this place. And oh, what a godly teen. And what a godly young man. and, And even what a godly man. And yet he's broken as we're broken. And yet in this, he's agonized. His bones are wasting away. What a horrible place to be. He's groaning, he's roaring, he's heavy uh, hand of the Lord. The Lord is laying into him, not because the Lord has not forgiven his sins, past, present, and future, because David is not keeping current with the Lord. David knows there's sin that's there and he doesn't want to talk about it. Because, you know, if you don't talk about it, it's like the little kid. I know you can't see me, right? You know, the kid who closes, puts their hands over their eyes and because they can't see you, you think they can't see you. I get that right? Okay, we're, you got the idea. And yet we are like that and, and yet it's in this reality, David's silent. David's silent with whom? David's silent with the Lord. David is silent about what? David is silent about his own sin. But the Lord loves repentance. The Lord loves repentance. I'm going to tell you this week, this has gutted me. Um, I've just been doing some theological reading about repentance this week. I got to tell you, I've just gotten frustrated with some of the reading because there's arguing about, you know, do we really need to seek repentance when we've already been redeemed by the work of Christ? I'm just, why do we want to stay away from that place? Why would we want to stay away from the place of just coming before the Lord and acknowledging the reality of who we are and what's been going on in my life today, in my life this week, and acknowledging it before the Lord? Why would we want to stay away from that place when we know, we know that God would pour grace out? Why stay away from there? Why am I silent? Why are we silent with the Lord on this? We are missing out. That's the fact of the matter. We are missing out on the gospel being rehearsed in our mind again and again, and living new people frequent this place. The prodigal son, the prodigal son, when when, when he went off just to go rogue, he was the father's son when he went off, he was the father's son while he was rogue, and he was the father's son when he returned. And how did the father treat the son when he returned in his repentance? He stood there going, I don't think so. You better do some serious heavy duty cleaning up on the farm and it's going to start in the stalls. No. He runs to him. Arms out, excited. And then he throws a party. An older brother Older brother's ticked off because I've been faithful. What about a party for me? We'll get you one. 
But right now, the Lord loves the repentance. The Lord loves it when his people establish that reality and living new people frequent that place. Listen, you come to life in Christ by repentance and you continue in life in Christ by repentance. I'm not talking about losing your salvation at all, ever. Truly saved, truly saved, but current, but current. Adam and Eve tried to hide it. Jonah tried to run from it. Saul, the apostle Paul, he just tried to live in his own self-righteousness that he didn't really need it until God put him on his face. And David, he pulled the silent move. If I just don't talk about it, maybe the elephant will leave the room. And God's like, no. Silence with the Lord gets us nowhere real fast. Verse five, and yet David declares delivered. Verse five, I acknowledged, I have, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity. You forgave the guilt of my sin. That's it. The problem was silence. So what did David do? David gets to the point where months after months of David in his sin with his elephant in the room and God just allowing him to feel the weight and the pressure and the disconnect on what's going on. David, just get current with me, man. Just get current with me. And yet the Lord is pressing in and pressing in because we're proud, because we're arrogant, because we don't want to say that we did wrong, but we love pointing the fingers at other people. And then it got to the point where David acknowledged David acknowledged the elephant in his room. He acknowledged. It's like in his head. Yeah, I did it. Yeah, life's rough and getting rougher. I did it. By the way, you can acknowledge something and yet not confess it. Just saying I did it doesn't mean and it was wrong doesn't mean it was confessed. It was stated. David acknowledged, and you see in the text, I will confess my transgressions to whom? To whom? The Lord. Not to buddies, which is fine, but to the Lord is the key thing in here. David confessed. He spoke it. He said it. He put it into words. Man, there's one thing to kind of in your head acknowledge something. There's another thing when you have to say it and you have to hear it. It's like if you see it right in front of you. Yep, I did that. By the way, I think one of the most fascinating, thing, fascinating things about this psalm is the way David uses these words in Hebrew for sin. You know, those three words that I said earlier that you forgot what they are, he brings them back in verse 5. He opens them up in verses uh, one and two, and he brings them back in verse five. Let let me read it with those words. I acknowledge my hata to you, the entirety of my sin. I didn't didn't just go, uh, you know, I'm going to try and and, and make this (laughs) sweet and condensed. And and, no, I'm going to nail into it. I'm going to acknowledge, and I'm going to uh, uh, acknowledge the, the hata, the entirety of my sin. No closed doors, everything out on the table. And I did not cover up my avon, 
my religious ethical transgressions. This wasn't just a horizontal sin. This just wasn't about deceiving uh, people. This wasn't just even about adultery with a woman. This just even wasn't about murder of a man. This, this was about an entire uh, reality of ethical transgressions, spiritual transgression, vertical transgression. And I said, I will confess my Pesha to the Lord, my open, brazen, willful covenant rebellion. Ouch! David's acknowledgement here in one sentence has depth to it and theology to it and specificity to it and ownership to it and real to it. By the way, I'll just say he's, he's not, which is fine, uh, he's not reading some liturgical prayer. He's not Googling up really pretty repentance prayers. It's not someone else's prayer, it's David's. David has to own it. And David uses these words to help us understand all that took place on the entirety of my sin, both horizontal and vertical. I named it as open, brazen, willful, covenant rebellion. It wasn't an oopsie. It wasn't I just had a bad night. It wasn't the weight of leadership. It wasn't the thing I'm just tired. It wasn't. David owned it for real. Say law. Exalt. Lift up. Think about it. <laughs> and then he has like this parenthetic instruction moment. I just only have a moment for it. You know, that's what psalmists do. It's, they, they tell and then they put some things in. I'll just, a couple comments, verses six through 10. Therefore, in light of my story, let everyone who is godly. By the way, that's interesting. That's interesting. He's talking about those, if I might say today, New Testament times, he's talking about let everyone who is redeemed in Christ. That's where this is focused on. This is who he's talking to first and foremost. He's not just talking to the person without Christ, but if you are without Christ, you need to repent and come to Christ. But in that reality, he's talking about to those who have come to Christ. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. They, they will reach him. He's using illustrative, uh, I don't have the time to explain it all out. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. By the way, can I, I'll just say it this way. Repent now. You know, here's a guy who's been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off because he doesn't want to go to God. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, know, you know how that is? I don't know. Maybe you're in that spot right here, right now, this morning. You've been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and it's time. I'm just telling you, not tomorrow, not after the service, now. Boy, I hope I don't sound angry. I am so intense about this this morning. This has gutted me. Why don't we go to this place more often? Go now. David's from his own story. Don't do what I did. Go. Come to the Lord. Repent. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Uh, verse 9, it, it talks about this mule. It's a, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't be a, 
Don't be a mule. Man, there are some moments for emphasis. I want to use King James Version. I hope I didn't just offend you with that. Don't be a mule. (sighs) Lord, I don't want to. I don't want to go that way. I want to be my way. Get that out of my mouth. Don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Yeah, right. Let's be real. We're arrogant and we're fools. And the Lord loves it when his people get humble. Let's cut the muleness with our sin. It isn't about perfection. Luther had it wrong. This isn't about getting to a place to where you can no longer sin. Good luck. But this is about being a people who frequent the place of repentance because that's where grace flows and the gospel is rejuvenated again in our minds and our lives. Life begins with, in, with Christ, begins with repentance, and life in Christ continues with repentance. So why do we struggle with, grow, with living new? Why do we struggle with growing and changing in Christ? as someone has said, and I agree, because we desire to be our own little kings and queens over our own little dominions, where the people around us, including the people sitting nearby us, are there to do our beckoning on our time frame in our way for our purposes as we deem it should happen. And when they don't fulfill the queen and kingness of my desires of how they should be doing life, wow, they irritate me because I'm not getting what I want. The place of repentance brings humility to all of that. I am not a king. You are not a king. You are not a queen. God is the king. And we are broken people who are given the opportunity to live for his glory for his, under his ways, for his purposes. And we struggle to do that. And instead of the king crushing us, he just says, let me pour out grace. But if you go silent on me, I'll lean in. Living new people frequent the place of repentance. And verse 11, look at the finish. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Makes me wonder, well, why don't we respond more excited in repentance before the Lord? I think it's because, seriously, we don't understand this kind of depth to it. Entering the place of repentance, it's hard. Leaving the place of repentance. Booyah! Because what just happened there? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, 
uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Didn't do that for the first service. <laughs> you know, it's gladness comes out deep in her joy that is known as taking place. Gladness and rejoicing. The expression of what is known just took place. <laughs> and shouting. That wasn't just a monk moment. That was a transactional moment with God. Entered with guilt, exit with joy. Why don't we frequent that place more often? Why don't we want that more often? Because we're proud and because we don't lean into the depth of what takes place there. Luther, I torment myself to death to procure peace with God for my troubled heart and my agitated conscience. I was surrounded by horrible darkness and could find peace nowhere. Later, as Luther understands biblical repentance, he says, Oh, my dear brother, oh, my dear sister, learn to know Christ and Christ crucified. Learn to sing to him a new song, to despair of yourself. And to say to him, thou, Lord Jesus, thou art my justice. I am thy sin. Thou hast taken what is mine and has given me what is thine. Woo-hoo! That's added. That's what should be. The Lord loves the place of repentance. Have I said that this morning? God's people, living new people, should frequent that place. Have I said that this morning? It's time to do that. It's time to do that this morning. This is a great place for repentance and this is a great time for it. I don't even care what your sins are, whether they're big or whether they're little. Either way, place of repentance is the place where you find the gloriousness of God reunited in your life again. Let's imagine ourselves here at the foot of the cross. Communion in hand. gazing at our Lord on the cross, nailed, so disfigured you wouldn't recognize him. And he's there in our place for our sin, receiving our wrath, taking on our guilt, it's a radical place. It's an uncomfortable place. But it is an absolute glorious place. Because his work becomes our provision.
And we see him talking to the guy on the cross next to him. Passing out grace even on the cross. This is a good place to be. And I just want for you to take a minute or two. You just you and the Lord. And what need do you need to get current with? Let's just go there now. And then when you're ready, you go ahead and take the bread and drink the cup. So Lord, here we are at the foot of the cross in the place of repentance. When we kept silent, but then we acknowledged, then we confessed. We did not hide, we did not cover, we did not remain silent. We acknowledged our sin, we confessed our transgressions, Lord, and Pesha forgiven. Yvonne, gone. Tata, covered. Repentance anew. Repentance afresh. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, no guilt, no deceit. From full guilt to blessing upon blessing. Be glad. Revive your souls. Shout for joy. You, God, are good.